Eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. Our guest today was five years old when her parents split up and she suddenly found herself in the care of her grandfather, an eccentric Big Sur beekeeper who made honey in an old military bus in the yard. As they bonded over the art of beekeeping, she discovered that everything she needed to know about life and family was right there before her eyes in the secret world of bees. Thank you so much, Meredith May, for being here today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Charlie, thanks so much for asking me. Well, Meredith's new book is The Honey Bus, a memoir of loss, courage, and a girl saved by bees. Meredith spent 16 years at the San Francisco Chronicle, where her narrative reporting won the Penn USA Literary Award for Journalism, the Casey Medal for Meritorious Journalism, and first place feature writing awards from the Society of Professional Journalists and the Associated Press. And and if that wasn't enough, she was also shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. She is the co-author of I Who Did Not Die. That's about a child soldier who risked his life to rescue a wounded enemy fighter during the Iran-Iraq war. Meredith is a former professor of journalism and podcasting, which I didn't know you could get a degree in that nowadays at Mills (laughs) College. And she's a fifth generation beekeeper and lives in San Francisco, where she keeps several hives in a community garden. Check out the website for the book, The honeybus.com. Well, you say it wasn't until you got a bit older and looking back on your past that you realized you had experienced a rather unusual childhood. So was that what inspired you to want to tell your story at this point in your life, Meredith? Well, I always knew that I wanted to write a book about my family because I knew there were some really unusual characters in it. I knew that it was unusual, at least, um, in that area to be raised by a grandparent, but not only a grandparent, but in Big Sur by a beekeeper. So I knew I would always do that. But, you know, the moment I knew what this book was about was um, 2011, I decided with an editor to get bees and put them on the roof of the San Francisco Chronicle. (laughs) Yeah, one of the busiest intersections in the whole city. but the day the bees came in their delivery cages, we were transferring them into the empty hives, and a group of coworkers had gathered to watch. And I had not held bees for 30 years. And when I felt their vibration in my palm again, I was just really emotional, and I started weeping. And, you know, my colleagues must have thought, one, she's getting stung, or two, she's having a breakdown. Um, but that's when I realized... I have this really unusual connection with these stinging insects, and that would make an interesting book. And I'm Um, sure they were uh, thinking you might be a little nuts, too. uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Crying over bugs. I know. It's like, what are we going to do with her? Like, get her into therapy? Get her to the hospital? (laughs) Yeah, it was was just an unusual moment because um, everything about them was so familiar to me, but on this deep, personal emotional level. And I couldn't put it into words. I couldn't explain to them what was happening to me, but it was it was really my my Oprah light bulb moment, I guess. So was the impetus for that just to like, oh, I want to do this as an interesting thing from my past and oh, we'll write about a story, you know, a story for the Chronicle and that'll be that. No, that that moment was like I had been writing family stories up to that point with the idea of really wanting to write a memoir. Um 
you know, I'm a big memoir buff, and I love Glass Castle, and I love uh, Liar's Club and The Tender Bar. And I wanted to do a, a similar vein book, but my focus in the beginning was really on um, family dynamics. And, you know, mine, frankly, are not that interesting. It's a divorce that sends my mother into a, a you know, a permanent depression. And, uh, you know, that that could resonate, but, mm, but the moment when I had my honeybee meltdown on the roof of the Chronicle <laughs> was when I realized, okay, uh, these these creatures are like family to me and they're, they're, they're very, very special. And that could be a really interesting book. Um, there's so much written about bees, but they fall mainly into two camps. One, how to, right? Sort of the sciencey how to, and the other magic realism, like um, Secret Life of Bees or The Bees by uh, Marie uh, Lundy, or excuse me, The Bees by Laleen Paul. So I wanted a different lane that's kind of a blend of the two, like magical stuff that only a beekeeper knows, uh, but but that is true, and um, a really a study of their social society and their benevolence as a colony, and how that can inform you how to be a better person. Well, your mother moved you and your brother completely across the country from Rhode Island to California when you were five years old to get away from your father. So talk about why you think she she did that and, and made such a drastic change in your, all of your lives and, and how your family just it completely changed overnight. It really did. I was about five, almost five. My brother was three. We lived in Rhode Island because my father was in the Navy. And my mother was extremely volatile. Um, there is a reason uh, I didn't find out later until I was older, and, and it's sort of revealed in the book, so I won't say it now, but there is a legitimate reason. Um, but she, I remember dishware flying in the house. I remember the screech of her voice. Um, she was just really, really uh, ups, up high highs and low lows with her. Um, and when, when the divorce happened, my mother just caved. I, I think she thought this marriage was going to turn her life around finally. And when it didn't, she called her mom and said, I, I don't know what to do. And mom said, come home. So my mother put my brother and I on a plane, said we were visiting my grandparents. And we instead moved into my mom's childhood bedroom with my mother and I shared a bed with her for about a decade. My brother had a cot, and my mom just retreated under the covers. Now, my grandfather is not my mom's dad. That is, he is my mom's stepfather. Um, but the thing that was so hard for my brother and I is that my father's name was never mentioned again. He, and um, my grandmother and my mom sort of formed an alliance um, my grandmother nursed my mom, and that became her normal job. So my brother and I gravitated toward my grandfather. Certainly in those days, people didn't talk about uh, 
oh, there might be some underlying issue here that you probably, you know, explore a bit more in the book in terms of your mo- your mom's mental health. And uh, my parents are divorced and uh, my mom, much later in life as we were all adults, got a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. So that explains mm-hmm. some of the things that uh, we had to deal with, you know, growing up. And she whisked me away one weekend, I remember, and left my brother and sister behind with my dad. And it was one of those like, oh, we're going for a visit. But it was a precursor to her walking out the door, too. So, uh, oh, my gosh. So, so we're in the same tribe. Yes, I, I certainly okay. I, I certainly recognize some of that. And, uh, and it was always like this big pink elephant in the room, even with, I think, the siblings of, well, that's just the way mom is. Oh, my gosh. You sound like me talking. Yes. You know, it's like, um, you know, the few times I would try to ask my grandmother, like, what's why is mom not getting out of bed? And the answer was always, you know, you, we need to help her get better. Um, you know, we need to not bother her. We need to stay quiet. And, um, and eventually as I got older to be a teenager, I started saying, okay, wait a minute, this is just not right. Then it became, um, that's just the way she is, you know, and mom was a, a permanent victim and she was enabled to be a permanent victim by the way my grandmother dictated we all treat her. So there was really no, never any uh, responsibility um, for her own actions. She just, she needed help constantly. So there was a role reversal between her own children and her. Like we were there to assist her. I can relate. I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think as the last child left at home with my mom, uh, I think the uh, the term that uh, we sort of coined between the three of us, the siblings, was I was the surrogate husband uh, stuck to, to uh, deal with all of her mess in, in, in my teenage years. So uh, tell us a bit about the honey bus. And do you remember what you thought of it the first time you saw it? Yes. Okay. The honey bus is an old World War II army bus that um, was in my grandfather's backyard. And he had bought it from a friend in Big Sur who got it at auction at the Fort Ord military base. And he gutted it and tore out all the seats and built his honey bottling factory inside out of old spare junk. And he was a plumber, so there was a lot of spare junk. And um, he had the honey spinner in there and he had a pump that was fueled or powered by um, an engine he ripped out of a lawnmower that would pump the honey up through galvanized steel plumbing pipes that ran the length of the ceiling. And uh, we would every summer bottle honey inside. And it was just a really special place where we could talk about our feelings and no one was listening. And I could ask, you know, real questions and, He would talk to me a lot about how bees solved problems. And, you know, now that I'm an adult and I look back, I can see what he was doing. And he was talking to me about how, for example, scout bees, how they look for a new home when the one they have is not good. It's either too crowded or too drafty. And then they come back and dance to tell the bees the location of the new home. And then... I don't know, they have a meeting or something, but on a appointed day and time, they swarm off to the new home. And um, what he was doing was giving me a concept of a future and teaching me that it takes initiative to make your life better, but it 
can be better if you work for it. So it wasn't a matter of like, oh, it's this weird bus. It was like a magical place that you could get away to. Is that how you envisioned it? Yeah, it became that because you'd asked when I first saw it. Um, I first saw it when we uh, came home from the airport after that sudden trip to my grandparents' house. And it was almost completely engulfed in trees and bushes. And um, it was had rust holes in the roof. It was just this dilapidated thing, but it held this Willy Wonka-like uh, fascination over me. But Grandpa kept it locked, and he wouldn't let us in until we were about a year or two older because he kept saying we'd lose a finger. Yeah, I don't know. But I would watch him. I would hide in the grass and watch him work in there with his friends from Big Sur, and it just looked so... Um, enticing and special and secret club-ish that, you know, I really, really wanted in. So I was sort of mesmerized. You write in The Honey Bus about you became a person who sought out hiding places. Was this The Honey Bus became one of those places for you, Meredith? Yeah, exactly. It was just grandpa and me time, and it was away from mom and her needs, and I didn't have to worry about asking for things or saying what I felt about things or being loud or having lots of questions. I could just be a kid. And were you conscious of that at the time that your your grandfather was playing this role of, of, of a kind of security blanket for you? No, not as a little kid. I mean, I felt it in, in, in my heart and in my body. I mean, I gravitated toward him. I preferred being with him. Um, and I spent most of my free time with him. It wasn't until I got to be about his age, about 50, when he when I showed up in his life, that I realized what he had been for me. Well, Meredith, you said some life lessons that you carry on today, you, you learn from the bees, like you were talking about the scout bees. Can you give us some more uh, other life lessons that you learned? Yeah. Um, one time we went to his bee yard in Big Sur, and I noticed that there were a lot of um, dead bees on the ground outside of the hives, and I thought something terrible had happened, and Grandpa was ignoring it. He was just stepping on them indiscriminately and going about his business of inspecting the hive, and um, when I asked him about it, he said, oh, well, you know, it's getting on to be winter, so the worker bees push out the male drones because they're a, they're a drain on resources. Um, all they do, they the only job of a male bee is to uh, beg for food and to mate with a virgin queen, which is actually a rare occurrence for a drone. It's just not an off chance that a virgin queen flies by and they're fast enough to catch her. So um, what happens is they push the drones out so that they can survive over winter eating the honey inside the hive. And the poor guys, they die out in the cold. And then next spring, the queen will just make more drones. So he was explaining this to me, and he was saying, you know, you, you, um, if you help people, they'll help you back. But if all you do is take, then, well, you get pushed out, you know. So that mm-hmm. lesson was pull your weight. <laughs> don't just, don't don't be a taker only. Interesting. Well, talk about uh, your mom a bit more. She passed away not all that long ago, and your relationship 
evolve to a certain extent, as they all do as we grow into adults. Did you feel like you were able to have at least some closure with her before she died, Meredith? Um, I appreciate you asking me that because uh, a lot of people are afraid to make me go there um, because they think it's a sensitive topic. And I'm really, really open about it because I, I think that there's a mommy taboo in our culture where we're not supposed to say anything negative about our mothers, no matter how negative they are towards us. And I think that's really dangerous and, and harmful. Um, I was able to talk with my mother eventually about her childhood, which helped me understand what was going on with her. I don't believe it absolved her of um, disappearing on her own children. Um, but as her health started to fail, um, my brother and I would visit her. Um, she was in a, a care facility, and we would visit her. Um, and, you know, I was always sort of waiting for the um, television moment where she realizes in her last weeks that she does love us and, and she's sorry that she didn't get to know us. You know, and I imagined there would be some sort of embrace and she would finally say she was sorry. Uh, that, of course, doesn't happen. That's not real life. But what did happen is it was the last time I saw her, she, um, she was on morphine, so she was very groggy. But she snapped awake and grabbed my hand, and I remember it was so tight. I remember thinking it felt like a, a bird talon. It hurt. And she said, I'm so glad you're here. And then she passed back out again. I was just glad I could be that for her, and I'm glad she could say that even though it was still a needy statement. Um, so she didn't change to the end, and it's irrational to think that she would, but I'm glad I didn't hold a grudge to the end. And certainly one of those things, as we grow into adults, we have to, uh, we have to come to some peace about who these people are that are our parents, and with all their faults and foibles, and, uh, and, and, and just be at peace with it. Right. Like, exactly. Like, it's sort of a juvenile um, statement to say you want your mother to apologize to you. Like, we, exactly to your point, like, we have to learn, we being people who grew up like this, how to be our own parents and to uh, stop trying to change everybody around to benefit us and just be a lot more zen about it. Well, let's talk about bees, because they've been in the news the past few years, and colony collapse was all the rage for a while there. Why are bees disappearing, Meredith? Uh, well, there's like a perfect storm uh, right now for bees, but um, the shorthand uh, way to explain it is there, is three, there are the three P's. It's pesticides parasites and poor nutrition. So the pesticides are, you know, your neighbors put, spraying Roundup in their yards. It's horrible stuff. Bees get this and they may not die immediately when they're on that flower with the pesticide, but they uh, bring back traces of it into the architecture of the wax of their home. And it's like living in 
a lead-based paint home eventually. It might not get you, but it might get your child, and all of a sudden you're dealing with neurological problems. So if you, there's also, you know, that's on a small scale. We have these huge monocrops that are um, sprayed, and then beekeepers truck their hives in and leave them for a month or so to, during pollination, and so the bees are um, exposed to toxins that way as well. And they're also forced to eat a mono diet, which also um, wrecks the, with their system. Well, that is a, um, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I could keep going. There's a lot. I mean, and then the poor nutrition is that, you know, we've paved over their wildflower meadows, um, and there's just not as much forage, natural forage and diverse forage and clean forage for the bees. And then there's this really awful pest called a varroa destructor, which is a mite that attaches itself to the bee and sucks out the body fluids and passes virus. So um, they, they're, they're contending with all of these things at once. Um, but the hopeful thing about bees is their incredible resilience. Um, they regenerate very quickly. A queen can lay more than 1,000 eggs a day. So if we just provide sanctuary, if we just keep planting native wildflowers everywhere, alongside roads, on roofs, in, if we really focus on this, they can come back. Well, Meredith May is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new book is The Honey Bus, a memoir of loss, courage, and a girl saved by bees. Check out the website, thehoneybus.com. Thank you so much for being here today. I had a good time. Thank you, Charlie. I'd like to know what you think of Conversations. Write me an email to charlie.dyer at ihubradio.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Charlie Dyer. Charlie Dyer.